It's my privilege to be offering the Dharma talk on this Easter morning. And while this is a Buddhist temple and not a Christian one, I think it's appropriate to wish everyone a happy Easter. <laughs> happy Hanukkah. Uh, I think it, and uh, Easter is such a wonderful symbol in any case of new life, new growth, new opportunity, and it comes at such a beautiful season. And we haven't had such a beautiful spring in a long time as we're having right now very much in the spirit of what Easter stands for. The title of my talk this morning is Eight Stages of Life. It's a funny title. I'm basing it on the work of the psychologist Eric Erickson on what he called the eight ages of man. And had he written it today, hopefully he would have been a little more PC and called it the eight ages of humanity. Erickson was a very interesting man. He was analyzed by Sigmund Freud and Freud was so taken with him that he designated him the title of psychoanalyst, even though Erickson had no more than a high school education, no more formal education. And he went on to become a full professor at Harvard University, and perhaps the only person to do so without having had as much as a college education, though he had several honorary doctorates. He was a brilliant man. And in his writings, Erickson built on the work of his teacher, Freud, but he went well beyond Freud. Freud felt that the human personality was pretty much formed by age six or seven and that the most important developmental stage, uh, milestones were achieved by the age of puberty. He didn't suggest that it was impossible to make changes in your life after that, but he really felt that the foundations of human personality and character were formed in early childhood, pretty much in stone. Erickson felt that early childhood was important in shaping personality, but he felt that developmental growth continues throughout the lifespan. We're continually growing, learning, changing. He divided the lifespan into eight stages. And for each of those stages, he felt that there is a developmental task that is genetically built into us and that we need to deal with and achieve during each of those eight stages. And there is an identifiable loss or damage that may occur if we don't achieve that task, each task during the stage appropriate to the task. Now, I want to briefly describe these stages for you because I think they're helpful and I think they're accurate. And it'll hopefully become apparent a little later how this relates to our spiritual practice. But first, let me say that each of the eight developmental tasks that, that Erickson describes are not limited just to that period in the lifespan that he associates with that task. But all eight are present throughout the lifespan. There's a window of opportunity within which each is most appropriately achieved. But that window doesn't entirely close if you move past that into the next stage without having achieved it. Uh, it's much more difficult to achieve it after you've passed through that stage. But it's as if the brain is wired to achieve certain things during certain stages of our lives. And we can see this physiologically in children. For example, at around age one, the brain is wired for the child to learn how to walk and to begin speech and learn how to talk. It becomes much more difficult to start that at a later age, but not impossible. So what are these eight developmental tasks? And when are we faced with each of them? The first, which Erickson says is the task of the first two years of life, is developing what he called basic trust. 
And he said, if we don't achieve that, then we may suffer from what he calls basic mistrust. When an infant's need for food and love are treated in a consistent and compassionate way, the infant learns to trust the world is a dependable place and that his or her needs will be sufficiently met. If the infant is neglected or treated harshly or inconsistently, he or she may develop what Erickson calls basic mistrust, viewing the world and other people with suspicion and apprehension. And the degree to which you or I expect good things or bad things to happen in our lives, whether we approach the world with our glass half full or half empty, Erickson say would depend a lot on how we were treated during the first two years of our lives. Does that mean that if you were neglected as an infant, you will always view the world with mistrust? No, because other experiences in your life that occur later on can help correct and compensate for what happened earlier. But it is the first two years that are most significant in shaping how trusting we are. Something, because he didn't really do any normal stuff at that time. But then after his enlightenment, a lot of people began to see something. They also can tell he's changed, something different. And his or her own, as they all do, often played out initially in the toilet training process, particularly. Depending on how the parents and other caretakers respond, Erickson says the child will either develop a sense of autonomy, I can do this for myself and it is good. Or if the parents are critical and over controlling, the child may develop a sense of shame and doubt. I am bad because I dared to say no to mommy or daddy, or I failed to use the potty or whatever. For those who experience a lot of shame in their lives, who feel that whatever they do is never good enough, the origin of this feeling, says Erickson, lies most strongly in those years of toddlerhood. But again, both the sense of autonomy and shame are affected by other things that occur throughout our lives. Erickson calls the third stage, which is roughly age five through seven, initiative versus guilt. This is when the child clearly begins to be able to initiate activities both mentally and physically that were not possible before. He or she begins school, uh, learns to read, becomes more proactive and less reactive vis-a-vis -vis the world. And if this initiative is recognized and rewarded by caretakers and teachers, the child develops a sense of being a confident, effective person. If it is negated, the child tends to feel guilty. My parents are clearly the authorities in this world, and if they say I am bad, then clearly I must be bad. This moves then into the fourth stage from age six or seven until puberty, which Erickson calls the stage of industry versus inferiority. As the child becomes routinized in school life, in school life and gets feedback from teachers in the form of grades and gets feedback from the parents in terms of how they respond to how the child's doing in school and begins to get more feedback from peers as they become more important in the life of the child, depending on the nature of that feedback, the child will either develop a sense of industry or competence, I can be an effective person in the world, or a sense of inferiority, I always get it wrong, I'm not as good as others. So these first four stages, which I've said rather briefly and, and probably oversimplified a bit, for Erickson pretty much cover the period of early and middle childhood. 
But here's where I think it gets interesting. The fifth through eighth stages of life that he develops are the ones that occur after childhood and which are shaped largely in our adult lives. And this is where Erickson differs most strongly from Freud and other early psychoanalytic thought. For Freud, by age nine or 10, our character is pretty much shaped and laid down in stone. But for Erickson, in some ways, this is only the beginning. Because as we grow up and get older, there are new developmental tasks to be tackled. And however we may have dealt with the tasks of childhood, how we cope with these later tasks as adults is critical to our happiness and our success in adulthood. And for most of us, our adulthood comprises 75 to 80% of our lives. Now, I'll quickly describe the fifth through eighth stages and then talk about how these are affected by our attitude and our spiritual practice. For Erickson, the fifth stage, which occurs during late puberty and adolescence, is the stage that he calls identity versus role diffusion. It's the period during which we begin asking, who am I vis-a-vis -vis the world? How do I view myself and identify myself? In all the roles in which I find myself, student, son or daughter, friend, teammate, and so forth, what is the consistent me that runs through all of these roles that I fill? Now, clearly, this is a question that's not limited to adolescence, and identity crises occur again and again in life, and there are some uh, some people who feel, some psychologists who feel that most of us will experience one identity crisis every decade of our adult lives, especially in this modern society. But again, it's during adolescence that this takes on the sharpest meaning for us, developing a sense of who am I in the world and what is the consistent me in all that I do. He says if we don't develop a clear sense or a semi-clear sense of identity, then we will suffer from what he calls role diffusion, a sense of being lost, always being on the outside, not knowing where and how we fit into the world. Then as we mature and complete our education and begin to find our place in the world, which for some may occur as early as age 20, for others may occur much later than that, we enter the sixth of Erickson's eight stages, what he calls intimacy versus isolation. Erickson suggests that the developmental goal that is, again, sort of programmed into our brains and into our DNA, the developmental goal of early adulthood is learning how to become truly intimate with at least one other human being. And by intimacy, he's not talking just about sexuality or marriage but rather the ability to learn to relate to another person in such a way that their well-being becomes as important to us as our own well-being. That's how he would define intimacy, and I think that's a good definition, that the well-being of the, learning to value someone else enough that their well-being is as important to you as your own well-being. He says if we don't succeed at being able to achieve this kind of intimacy, we will suffer from what he calls isolation. We will feel alone, cut off from others and from the world. We'll feel lonely and our lives will be impoverished by not having found intimacy. Now the seventh of Erickson's eight stages is for most of us the longest one, which begins for most of us in our early 30s 
and continues until we begin to enter old age, which in this society is becoming later and later as people are routinely living into their 90s. Erickson calls stage seven generativity versus stagnation. By generativity, he means the ability to feel generative. Buddha was a model for the patient. A worker in the workplace, a good spouse, a creative artist, somehow I am making a positive contribution to the world. I am spreading more good karma than And if I should die tomorrow, I can die with the knowledge that at least in some small way, the world is a little better for my having been in it. That's generativity. And now, this need is obviously important to us throughout our lives. But as we approach midlife, I think it takes on particular importance because that's when we begin asking questions like, have I made the right career choices and the right personal choices in my life? And if I haven't, is there still time to do something about it? If we don't develop a sense of generativity, he suggests, we will suffer from a sense of stagnation. Our lives will seem increasingly meaningless, without purpose, and let me say that as a psychotherapist, I see this in my practice again and again with people I work with, this sense of feeling that there's meaninglessness in their lives, that there is no real generativity. Finally, the eighth and last stage, which is during the last years of our lives, Erickson says we're faced with what he calls integrity versus despair. But simply, it means that as we see the end of our lives approaching, we need to be able to say, for all the good and bad that has made up this life of mine, it's been okay. And if I had to live this whole life over again and made all the same mistakes, but live this essentially the life I've lived, I could affirm it and say it's been a good life, it's been okay. If we can't say that, he says, then we will suffer from a sense of despair. All right, so what are we to make of these eight stages of life of Erickson? And how can the knowledge of this view of human development be helpful to us? First of all, I, I think personally it's a brilliant and cogent theory of developmental tasks that we all face. It's helpful for parents and teachers to know what kinds of developmental tasks children are facing in the different stages of their growth. And it's helpful for us as adults as we look back on our own childhoods and our own earlier lives to understand the possible origins of some of the struggles that have dogged us throughout our lives. But secondly, and perhaps more significantly, I think that Erickson shows us in a very helpful way, contrary to classic psychoanalytic thought, that our growth and development doesn't stop when we cease being children. That there is growth and development continuing throughout our lifespan. And when he talks about identity, intimacy, generativity, integrity, as essential tasks that we as adults have to come to terms with, I think he's saying something very significant. Furthermore, and, and maybe this is the most important of all, he suggests that while each of the eight developmental tasks of life is more strongly attached to a particular time in our lives, he's not suggesting that that time is the only time that you can come to terms with or deal creatively with that task. If we lack basic trust, even as adults, or suffer from an inadequate sense of our own autonomy, 
or suffer from a sense of inferiority or low self-esteem because of an unfortunate childhood, we're not automatically doomed to an unhappy life. Each of us undoubtedly bears some scars from the mistakes of our parents and others who raised and shaped us. Some bear very deep scars or have experienced very severe trauma. But Erickson suggests it is never too late to find ways of healing those early wounds and finding new ways of making up later in life for what we missed earlier. A couple of years ago, I was driving through New Hampshire, in New Hampshire somewhere, and I saw a bumper sticker that I really liked. It said, it is never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> and I really like that. It is never too late to have a happy childhood. I would add to that, it is never too late to find ways to compensate for early hurts and losses and to carve out new paths that can bring balance and fulfillment into our lives, regardless of what we may have suffered earlier on. Now, this may sound a bit idealistic, but I think it's absolutely true, and it's certainly consistent with what we practice and believe as, as Buddhists. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. In more than 40 years of working as a psychotherapist, I have never ceased to be amazed at the resiliency of the human spirit at the amazing ways that people come to terms with the most awful losses and traumatic experiences. And recent studies of the human brain offer us at least a partial scientific explanation for why this is true. Some of you remember, about, it was about two years ago that I was giving a Dharma talk and I was talking about new studies of, on the neuroplasticity of the brain drawing largely on a book written by Norman Deutsch, who's a neuropsychiatrist at Columbia Medical Center, called The Brain That Changes Itself, which is a book I highly recommend. In that book, Deutsch documents recent studies on the brain that demonstrate convincingly that the brain is far more plastic or permeable than neurologists ever thought possible until the last 20 to 30 years. For example, he talks of studies in which people who had suffered crippling strokes and been paralyzed for decades were able to finally to regain use of the limbs that had been paralyzed through exercises that, that were utilizing previously underused parts of the brain that were compensating for the parts of the brain that had either died or been damaged, uh, which is an amazing thing. He discusses visual, uh, uh, something that's been going on with a researcher in California, using visual and mental exercises that have helped autistic children to gain better control of their emotions and motor skills to the point where some of them have been able to move from special ed to normal classrooms, which again is an amazing thing. He also cites studies that have shown that people who suffer from anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, serious and serious mental illness can learn through skillful guidance to reprogram the neural pathways in their brains as a way of better coping with neurosis and even psychosis. And ultimately he suggests that the day may come when our understanding of the brain will be sufficiently advanced, there will no longer be a need for psychotropic medication to treat mental illness. Now that's an amazing thought. I, the pharmacologist, I'm, I'm in the pharmacological, 
pharmacological <laughs> firms probably don't like this, but, and it's still a long way from where we are today, but I think there's every reason for hope and belief that it will happen in the not too distant future. We're learning so much about how the brain works. Now recently I've read another book after Deutsch's book that demonstrates how an understanding of the neuroplasticity of the brain can lead to healthy therapeutic changes for people suffering from every kind of mental distress and mental disorder. It's a book that I highly recommend that you, that you look at. It's very readable, it's not too technical. It's written by a psychiatrist named Daniel Siegel and it's called Mind Sight. Mind Sight. Siegel discusses in his book several case studies where he has helped people overcome relationship problems, anxiety, depression, excessive grief, and so forth by skillfully helping them to stimulate the part of the brain that in each case will most directly help to improve the situation. It's different parts of the brain are active in different disorders. To give just one example of a case that he describes, which I think is wonderful, he talks about a 92-year-old man who was brought to him by the man's son. The son described how his father, who had never been much of a person in touch with his emotions throughout his 92 years, had recently become particularly distant and mean-spirited toward the members of his family, his wife, his children, and his grandchildren. In taking this man's history, it became apparent to Siegel from his brain perspective that this man had operated mostly out, most of his life out of the left side of his brain, the side of the brain that is rational, analytical, formal, and had been cut off virtually from the right side of his brain, which is where the roots of creativity, imagination, compassion, and emotion lie. So in working with this man, Siegel led him through exercises that forced him to use more of the right side of his brain. And within a matter of months, the man began to experience feelings he had never felt before in his 92 years. He began treating the members of his family with more empathy and compassion and love. And it was a real transformation. And his family was very thankful to Dr. Siegel. Now, if this is not an illustration that it is never too late to change, I don't know what is. Prior to meeting with Dr. Siegel, this man was a candidate for ending his life in the state that Erickson calls despair, lacking the integrity of a life lived fully. But as it was, this man went on to live several more years with a great sense of fulfillment. And what I found particularly interesting in reading Siegel's book is that he places great emphasis on meditation and reflection. And here is where we see the connection of what I've been talking about to our spiritual practice. Siegel teaches all of his patients to meditate before he does anything else. Uh, and he has discovered, uh, which is not news to us, I think, that meditation creates a natural balance within the brain, between left and right brain, between cortex and brainstem, et cetera. He found that brain scans show that as a result of meditation, new tissue is grown in the prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of empathy and compassion. That's the part that's right behind the forehead. With meditation, there is more clarity of thought, more soothing brain activity, and, brain, and more soothing brain waves running through the roughly one trillion synapses that exist in each of our brains. 
Further, he has found that when we meditate, we're better able to gain some distance from negative emotions that tend to overwhelm us. He likens meditation, I love this, this analogy, he likens meditation to being deep down in an ocean in which there is turbulence and storms on the surface of the ocean, but there's total calm deep down beneath the surface. And he says that when we meditate with regularity, he suggests we learn to find that place deep below the surface where we feel safe and where we can then observe all those things going on on the surface, our anxiety, our anger, our frustrations, our ancient hurts and losses and all of that. We can see it on the surface, but there's a part of us that can separate from that and, can, and feel safe in, almost in that womb-like place deeper down in the ocean. Uh, I mean, and that, you know, it, it's, it, there's a big difference between saying, for example, I am anxious or I feel anxious. If you say I am anxious, you're suggesting that anxiety defines who you are. That's who you are, you're an anxious person. If you're saying I feel anxious, you are acknowledging that there is a part of you that is separate from that anxiety that can observe it from a distance and not be overwhelmed and consumed by it. And Siegel suggests that when we can, ex can get that perspective down in the ocean, that perspective that comes with repeated meditation, this allows us to become more balanced, empathic, compassionate, essentially healthy human beings. Now if he's right, and I think that we here, most of us who practice, would agree that he is, then we can say with some assurance that in our spiritual practice with daily meditation and all that that engenders, combined with the neuroplasticity of the amazing human brain with which we were each born, we each have at our disposal the tools to cope successfully with whatever life has dealt us in the past and whatever challenges it will face us with in the future. Whatever has happened to each of us in our own developmental journeys, for however many of those eight stages of Erickson we may have lived through or suffered through, we can know that there is always the possibility of new life, new growth, new adaptations. And what better message than that to embody the meaning of this Easter season? Thank you. <laughs>